Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Is it time to ban men from running for political office? I actually am not saying this tongue-in-cheek. Maybe just for a 20-year period or something, but are we going to have it like FDR banned the capitalists basically from running the country, and then in the 1970s they started creeping back in, and then Reagan opened the door, and pretty soon the capitalists are running our government again, and you know it's just gone to hell over the last 40 years as a result of, you know, the Supreme Court and the Reagan administration basically allowing giant corporations and billionaires, virtually all of them men, to run this country. Would the men just creep back in and take back over again? I think so, frankly. Meanwhile, in Texas, Star County, Texas, that county has started sending people with COVID home to die if they determine doing an evaluation at the hospital that they're unlikely to survive. They put together these panels. Sarah Palin used to call these death panels. It is a primary care physician, an emergency room doctor, the hospital doctor taking care of the patient, a social worker, and one of the hospital's administrators. They review every single one of the COVID cases in the hospital, and the ones that they don't think have a good chance of surviving, they're sending them home to die. Just go home, put your affairs in order. I know you can't breathe, sorry. We're not going to stick a tube in your throat. We don't have the resources. Now, what's the common denominator between these two things? Well, increasingly, it appears to be men. If you look at the countries that are doing the worst in terms of COVID virus, the countries that are absolutely failing, here in the United States, for example, It took us from the end of January, from January 20th, until three weeks ago to hit three million cases. It took three weeks to add another million. We are exploding with virus right now in the United States. And frankly, I suspect this is just the beginning because it still hasn't hit most of rural America. It's hitting the cities in red states. So the countries that are doing the worst are the United States, Donald Trump, Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, Russia, Vladimir Putin, Spain, Pedro Sanchez, the UK, Boris Johnson, Italy, Sergio Mattarella, and Francis Macron. Now, those are all men. The countries that are doing the very best with the coronavirus, Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, is the Prime Minister in Iceland. It's uh, Gianni Johansson in Finland. It's uh, Saui Ninisto in Norway. It's Erna Solberg. My apologies if I'm mangling these names. In Denmark, Mette Fredriksen. New Zealand, Jacinda Ahern. And of course in Germany, Angela Merkel. 
So the countries that are doing the best, those seven countries that I just named, are all run by women. The countries that are doing the worst are all run by men. I mean, you talk about how things shake out through natural selection, Darwinian processes. You know, over time, if you give a human society enough hundreds or thousands of years, they will figure out how to live, how to, how to make things work. And as has been documented by numerous people, probably the very best is Peter Farb's book, Man's Rise to Civilization and the Native American, the history of first contact with, I, I believe it was 34 different Native American tribes. It's an absolutely mind-boggling book. It became the basis of a good chunk of Dan Quinn's book, Ishmael. But when you read that book, you get that many Native American societies had done what the Iroquois had done. The Iroquois are most famous for it because Ben Franklin wrote about it. Thomas Jefferson wrote about it. It was well known to the founders. John Adams' wife knew about it. Was that in four of the five Iroquois Confederacy nations, men were not allowed to run for public office, essentially. You know, they had things to do, you know, they could lead hunting parties and, you know, they could do all kinds of stuff. But in terms of governing, it was women. The guys who were the runners, the, you know, the Sachems, those were men, but the people who actually made the decisions were women. Is it time to bar men from politics? Now, I realize there are some people out there whose heads are exploding. You know, some of you may be saying, but Tom, you know, you're a good guy. I would vote for you. Yeah, but look at the statistics. Look at the numbers. Look at what happens when you've got countries that are led by women versus men. Or states. Or counties. Or cities. I think that we've got you know, kind of a reckoning here. Now, you know, I get it that it was only in 1972 that it became the law in the United States that credit card companies could no longer require women to have a man co-sign for them. I remember that. My wife wanted a credit card. 1972, that was the year that the credit card companies stopped requiring a male co-signer to get a credit card in the United States. Somewhere in the 70s, I don't recall exactly what year it was, the newspapers by and large stopped having segregated men only, men wanted and women wanted help wanted sections. But I was talking about Darwinian selection. Over time, the Iroquois figured out what worked. I mean, the Iroquois and their forebearers have been on this continent for at least 10,000 years, and there are some suggestions it could be as high as 20 or 30,000 years. And through trial and error, they figured it out. We are being poisoned by testosterone. You've got Bill Barr and Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Mike Pence saying, oh, you know, we need to control women's bodies, us men. You got Donald Trump saying, oh, we gotta go to war, we gotta fight, we gotta kill. You've got Bill Barr, you know, leading the fascist brigades. And my second question for this hour is how much longer are Americans going to allow themselves to be abused by Republicans? I wrote about this over at BuzzFlash.com. Ever since the 1920s, when the Teddy Roosevelt progressive revolution that was continued by William Howard Taft to a certain point, when the Roosevelt-Taft Republican Party died, 
And it was taken over by the what ended up being the Herbert Hoover corporate Republican Party. I mean, it was Warren Harding in 1920 and then Coolidge and then Hoover. So you had these three Republican presidents from 1920 to 1932. And they brought us the Great Depression. But ever since the 1920s, when big business took over the Republican Party, which led, as I said, right to the Great Depression, Republicans have fought to give taxpayer dollars to billionaires and giant corporations while actively trying to screw working people and the poor, to destroy unions, to cut back on benefits to people who are in poverty, to defund our public schools. You know, both Bush and Trump, George W. Bush and Donald Trump, both lost the national vote. They only got into into the White House because of the Electoral College loophole. And let's start calling it that. The majority of Americans have not elected a Republican for president since 1988. And even in 1988, when the majority of Americans elected George Herbert Walker Bush, they did so because he was running racist ads, the Willie Horton ad, and he succeeded in scaring the hell out of white people in the suburbs, which is exactly what Donald Trump is trying to do right now. But we have not... As a nation, the majority of Americans have not voted for a Republican for president. What, 1988, what is that? 32 years ago. In 32 years, because the majority of Americans know what the Republican Party is all about. And now the Republican war on average Americans has, you know, has gotten worse. I mean, the Republicans right now, this is the news of today. The Republicans... The Republican caucus, the Republicans in the House, and the Republicans in the Senate, specifically in the Senate right now, you know, they're nearly coming to blows. They're having fights. They're having arguments in the House. They're all yelling at Liz Cheney. I mean, they're having these knockdown dragouts about whether the $600 a month unemployment benefit that 25 million Americans are getting right now should be cut to $400, to $100, or to zero. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. Meanwhile, of course, they want hundreds of billions of dollars in additional subsidies, tax breaks, and outright gifts and grants to America's largest corporations, to hedge funds, to banksters, and even to individual billionaires. They're in there in the Republican proposals. To hell with the working people, the unemployed people. We want to give more money to billionaires. They fund our campaigns, don't you know? I mean, it's just insane. Instead of helping unemployed workers and the poor, the Republican Party wants to send federal secret police into our cities to tear gas our mayors and our citizens and to shoot at journalists and petitioners. People petitioning their government peacefully for redress of grievance. This country right now is at a crossroads. And we have to decide, and this election in November is going to be a part of this referendum on this, but also what's happening in the streets, what's happening on social media, what's happening in neighborhoods, what's happening in workplaces, all of this. Are we going to continue being a country run by men and Republicans based on white supremacy, greed, and fear? Or are we going to replace, or are we going to embrace, excuse me, the the values of equality and respect and support for people in need? Which, by the way, those are the values that you see 
at the top of the pile. In Germany, Taiwan, New Zealand, Iceland, Finland, Norway, and Denmark, the countries that are doing the best with the coronavirus, all run by women. We have a brand new video up at uh, TomHartman.com, and this one's about national health insurance and why and how we really need a single-payer national health care system, whether you call it Medicare for All or you call it single-payer or you call it whatever. You know, Medicare for All, it has a lot of appeal because, generally speaking, Medicare is positively viewed. That's what they call it in Canada. It's called Medicare. And, you know, which makes sense, care for people using medicine. We would save at least $150 billion a year just on billing. You've got hospitals in the United States that have entire floors devoted to billing. Hospitals in Canada have one desk with you know one or two people sitting at that desk handling the billing. It's just crazy. And people would get better care, they get more comprehensive care, our entire nation gets healthier, and there's a whole bunch of essentially bullet points to build this argument for Medicare for All over at TomHartman.com. You can check it out right now. Okay, so Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this story is fairly widely known, I think, and you probably heard it, but just to recap very quickly, she was walking up the steps of the Capitol building two days ago, and uh, Ted Yoho, who is a Republican congressman from Florida, made some remarks at her, to her, and uh, which she will characterize herself in just a moment. And then as he was walking away, he said he called her an effing B word. And she's not taking it. She's not having it. And this speech that she gave on the floor is absolutely extraordinary. Now, now I'm doing the show from home, so it's a real it's a real lift for us to play audio direct off the Web to you. So I will read to you her speech. We you know, we're slowly here bringing up to speed our technical capabilities. But let me just read this speech to you. This is on the floor of the House of Representatives. She says, about two days ago, I was walking up the steps of the Capitol when Representative Yoho suddenly turned a corner. He was accompanied by Congressman Roger Williams and accosted me on the steps right here in front of our nation's Capitol. I was minding my own business, walking up the steps, and Representative Yoho put a finger in my face. He called me disgusting. He called me crazy. He called me out of my mind. He called me dangerous. And then he took a few more steps, and after I had recognized his comment as rude, he walked away and said, I'm rude, you're calling me rude? I took a few steps ahead, and I walked inside and cast my vote, because my constituents send me here each and every day to fight for them, and to make sure that they're able to keep a roof over their head, and that they're able to feed their families and carry on their lives with dignity. I walked back out, and there were reporters in front of the camera, and right in front of the reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, and she says it, I can't say it on the radio or television, an effing B-word. And she says these are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman. And she talks about how she has experienced this on subways. She experienced this when she was a server in restaurants and things and bars. And she goes on to say, this is not new. And that is the problem. Mr. Yoho was not alone. He was walking shoulder to shoulder with Representative Roger Williams. And that's when we start to see that this issue is not about one incident. It is cultural. It is a culture of lack of impunity, of accepting of violence and violent language against women and an entire structure of power that supports that. 
because not only have I been spoken to disrespectfully, particularly by members of the Republican Party and elected officials in that Republican Party, not just here, but by the president of the United States last year, he told me to go home to another country with the implication that I don't even belong in America. The governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, before I was even sworn in, called me a whatever that is. Dehumanizing language, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, dehumanizing language is not new. And what we are seeing is that incidents like these are happening in a pattern. This is a pattern of an attitude toward women and dehumanization of others. So while I was not deeply hurt or offended by little comments that are made, when I was reflecting on this, I honestly thought I was just going to pack it up and go home. It's just another day, right? But then yesterday, Representative Yoho decided to come on the floor of the House of Representatives and make excuses for his behavior. And that I could not let go. I could not allow my nieces, I could not allow the little girls that I go home to, I could not allow victims of verbal abuse and worse to see that, to see that excuse, and to see our Congress accepted as legitimate and accepted as an apology and to accept silence as a form of acceptance. I could not allow that to stand, which is why I'm raising to make this point of personal privilege. I will not stay up late at night waiting for an apology from a man who has no remorse over calling women and using abusive language toward women. What I do have issue with is using women, our wives and daughters, as shields and excuses for poor behavior. Mr. Yoho mentioned that he has a wife and two daughters. I am two years younger than Mr. Yoho's youngest daughter. I am someone's daughter too. My father, thankfully, is not alive to see how Mr. Yoho treated his daughter. My mother got to see Mr. Yoho's disrespect on the floor of this house towards me on television. I am here to show my parents that I am their daughter and that they did not raise me to accept abuse from men. What Mr. Yoho did was give permission to other men to do that to his daughters. In using that language in front of the press, he gave permission to use that language against his wife, his daughters, women in his community, and I am here to stand up and say that is not acceptable. This is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives. Having a daughter does not make a man decent. Having a wife does not make a decent man. Treating people with dignity and respect makes a decent man. And when a decent man messes up, as we're all bound to do, he tries his best and does apologize. Not to save face, not to win a vote. He apologizes genuinely to repair and acknowledge the harm done so that we can all move on. Lastly, what I want to express to Mr. Yoho is gratitude. I want to thank him for showing the world that you can be a powerful man and still accost women. You can have daughters and accost women without remorse. You can be married and accost women. You can take photos and project an image to the world of being a family man and accost women without remorse and with a sense of impunity. It happens every day in this country. It happened here on the steps of our nation's capital. It happens when individuals who hold the highest office in this land admit to hurting women and use this language against all of us. Is a time to ban men. You're listening politics. to the Tom Hartman program. Quick math the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, a prosecutor there is going after a woman by the name of Lanisha Bratcher. She's 32 years old. She voted in 2016 in North Carolina when she was on probation. She didn't know that the law in North Carolina says when you're on probation, you can't vote. This all comes out of the 13th Amendment, not ending slavery in the United States, but merely relegating slavery to those people who've been convicted of a crime. It's the reason why we have you know, four or five times more people in jail than any other country in the world. In fact, we are 4% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. No, it, it, it's not an accident. So, you know, when you're a slave, you have no rights. You don't have a right to vote in North Carolina. And so she voted. And now, well, here's the this is the story. Sam Levine writing for The Guardian. The headline, a black woman faces prison for a voting mistake. Prosecutors just doubled the charge. A North Carolina prosecutor accused of using a racist law to prosecute an African-American woman for voter fraud has now doubled the charges against her. The Guardian has learned. Bratcher said she had no idea she was ineligible to vote, but the district attorney in Hoke County, where she voted, decided to charge her with a class one felony. She's faced up to 19 months in prison. Depending, the case has been pending since last year. She's expecting her third child in December, by the way. In early June, the, the district attorney's office brought new charges against her. Two new grand jury indictments against her. This is mind-boggling. The basic message here, and I'm sure that the GOP is very, very happy that this is being publicized. The basic message here from Republicans in North Carolina is to black people, do not even dare to vote. We may find a way to put you in jail. Don't even think about it. It's the only way they can win. A federal judge just ruled that Donald Trump sent Michael Cohen back to prison purely as punishment, essentially, for threatening or intimidation, for threatening to write a book or publish a book critical of the Trump administration. Michael Cohen has to be released unless the Trump administration can come up with some other song and dance. You know, we'll see how that plays out. And, uh, you know, and increasingly all across America, you've got Republicans who are as Nancy Shively, she's a special ed teacher and lifelong Republican in Oklahoma. She wrote a column for USA Today. She said, when the pandemic hit, the incompetence of the man for whom I had voted, that would be Donald Trump, and the complicity of everyone around him 
forced me to admit that I can no longer, I was no longer able to maintain any kind of self-respect as a Republican. So even though I had voted Republican in every presidential election since 1976, I changed my voter registration independent and I will be voting for Joe Biden in November. Nevertheless, she added, I am still haunted because deep down, keep in mind, this is a teacher. Deep down, I fear that with that vote for Donald Trump, I may have signed my own death warrant. This is how our teachers, by the way, a population predominantly female, are viewing you know, what's being done by the population predominantly male of politicians in our country. It's amazing. Denise in Petersburg, Alaska. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Okay. I am calling because I wonder if you've ever read the book Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. Oh, yeah. Rianne Eisler is a dear friend of mine and her husband, oh, David yeah. Loy, who wrote a brilliant series of books about Darwin. I'm part of the committee that David put together to help do the research on that. And, uh, oh, and Rianne Eisler has been on this program a number of times. I mean, you know, really? I've, I've, had, uh, I've had dinner with them in their home. They're, they're just nice. extraordinary people. Rianne is wonderful. Yes, I'm very that familiar with the book. Was, even when I talk about it to this day, I read it, of course, years and years ago, but when I talk about it, it mm-hmm. gives me goosebumps. It's just, you know, along the lines of, of women being in power, it just that struck me right away at the beginning of all this, that all the women of the countries that were doing well and fighting it, it's just so... Fr- and, and your point about, okay, so will, they, will men slide back in? Well, of course, that's what they did, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. Right. I agree. And in fact, you know, during when John Adams was in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, his wife, Abigail, sent him a letter saying, you know, don't forget the ladies, basically, you know, saying we want voting rights at least. And he wrote back saying, you know, trust me, we will not surrender our male prerogatives. And then she wrote back saying, then we are committed to fomenting a rebellion. And there was a women's suffrage movement at that time. You know, I mean, it was small, but it was, mm. it was happening. But to the book, Denise, that you're talking about, for people who don't know who we're talking about or what the book is, back in the 70s or 80s, Rianne Eisler, who's just one of our, our most brilliant writers, and uh, I don't know if she's a sociologist or an anthropologist, or uh, she does have a PhD, I don't recall what, it is, what it's in, but she wrote this book, The Chalice and the Blade, and several other books as well, by the way, along the same lines, and, you know, talked about goddess culture and talked about countries and, and societies and cultures that have been run by women. And, and what happens when those societies get taken over by men. And it's remarkable stuff. Denise, I got to move along. It's, we got some funky noise there in the background. But thank you for the call. Susan in Phoenix. Hey, Susan, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just thought I'd point something out as to with these riots going on and where Trump is attacking. This is the first time since Vietnam that we've had so many protests. And they're all about Republican policies, not just Trump. He's enhancing them. The Women's March. Red for Ed, even global warming, and now Black Lives Matter. We need to point this out that this uprise is because of him, you know, and here he is attacking it. Maybe they should address these problems. Yeah, but it's not just Donald Trump, Susan. Donald Trump has hit the high point of 40 years of of Reaganism, Republicanism, and Libertarianism, and frankly, white supremacy and male supremacy. And it's increasingly obvious. In fact, the guy who shot the husband and son of that federal judge in New York, I believe it was in New York, that guy who shot them wrote a thousand-page book that he self-published 
in which he trashed the woman who was the judge. And he spent his career trashing women, you know, with legal challenges. I mean, it's like the misogyny, just this whole idea that men not only should be in charge, but are destined to be in charge. This is crazy. This is just crazy. Susan, thank you for the call. Donna in Bonnie Lake, Washington. I'm not hearing from men on this. (laughs) Donna, what's up? (laughs) Good morning, Tom. I'm just a little younger than you, and I was second-generation American. So both of my parents raised in the Bronx during the Depression. You know, they had those old-school philosophies, and any money that was saved was to save for my brothers. But just my experience, and I came out to myself when I was oh, going on 21 years old. So I've been a lesbian all my life and kind of on my own. And I always told people that in order to men for pay you any attention, you had to either stroke their ego, be helping their pocketbook, their wallet, or what's behind the wallet. <laughs> And um, providing them with sexual favors. And that's a real sad commentary on the fragility of men. I mean, you know, uh, what's her name? Robin, I'm forgetting your last name, wrote this book, White Fragility. And yes, that's very real. And it's it's huge, in fact. But male fragility is something that's almost never discussed. But it's it's the same thing. It's, It's this fragile ego, this fragile sense of self that when confronted turns into rage. Yeah, they're so self-centered. They're just taking care of themselves. You know, I've got two younger brothers that the only time they'd call you is if they needed you for something, (laughs) Where, where the girls, you know, are just checking up with each other. If we wanted to just say, you know, values that are elevated, cherished, highlighted, whatever word you want to use, as, quote, women's values tend to be, you know, historically and within society. And by the way, you see these in, in other species. We've got a bunch of geese and ducks on our, on our backyard, and it's like, you know, I've, I've seen this in geese and ducks. You know, the males strut around, but the females are providing the nurturing. They're making sure that the young are good. They're fighting on behalf of the young. We really need that right now. We need that all around the world. We need a caring society rather than a punishing society. And I just don't think that a lot of men are capable of providing that. Don, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Lynn in El Segundo, California. Hey, Lynn, what's up? Hi, um, I have a twofer for you. The first thing is we uh, defeat Trump and William Barr in their attempt to have these photo ops in the streets with, you know, making it look like his agents are putting down riots and horrible protesters. And so we stay home. And this is, you know, from a woman, if I were the ruler. So I'd say everybody clear the streets and give them a surprise and no photo op. And while we're home, we're writing postcards, we're making phone calls. We're donating money to some very progressive women candidates who want to defeat some either blue dog Democrat men or some Republican men. For example, two senators, we 
could help. Wynn is a Jeff Skarain in uh, Delaware to take out Chris Coons, and their primary is September 15th. Paula Swearingen of Knock Down the House fame is trying to beat Jim Justice. So those are two good women leaders that I'd love to see in politics. And um, in the House, Kathy Kunkel over Alex Mooney in West Virginia, Audrey Denny in California, too, and Kara Eastman uh, trying to take out Don Bacon in Nebraska. So there's some food for thought. Lynn, are these uh, Emily's List candidates? Is there a list of these somewhere on the web that you can easily find? I get my list from uh, Blue America Pack, Howie Klein, mm-hmm. uh, okay. and I find his, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I can mention his blog, but downwithtyranny.com. Sure. Oh, downwithtyranny.com. Oh, yeah. It's an outstanding source. Okay. I'll have to check that out. It's been, uh, I think, probably uh, a couple of years since I've looked at that website. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if uh, Joe Biden's commitment to putting a woman on the ticket with him when you combine that with the fact that Joe Biden is, what, 77 or will be mm-hmm. by next year when he gets, if he gets inaugurated, mm-hmm. it makes it a virtual certainty that whoever he picks as vice president is going to be running for president in 2024 and has a very, very good chance of being the next president of the United States. That's the main reason why this decision is so consequential, so big. It is. But I wonder if that, I mean, we've never had a woman as president. I, you know, we thought Hillary was going to be mm. the first one. But, yeah, Barbara uh, Lee, um, a representative Barbara Lee would be great. <laughs> I think Barbara Lee would be spectacular. She's, I don't think that she's anywhere near the top of the list, unfortunately. You know, unfortunately. But, um, I think, uh, yeah, I don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it raises, what, it, it raises it the question if this could be the beginning of something big. I mean, we're seeing more and more women elected to public office, almost exclusively in the Democratic Party. And the few women who are in the Republican Party, Susan Collins, Jody Ernst, they're very endangered within the Republican Party. Republicans themselves are mm-hmm. not you know, fond of women office holders. I think there's only a couple of women in the House who are Republicans, whereas a large mm-hmm. chunk of the, of the Democratic caucus. But you know, I think things are changing. You know, they clearly have changed inside the Democratic Party you know, with, with mm-hmm. more gender equality. But you know, we'll see. Lynn, I got to run, but thank yeah. you for the call. And great to hear from you. On the science revolution, Sonia Shaw, author of Pandemic, is here, and she says it's time to tell a new story about coronavirus. Our lives depend on it. Dr. Enric Sala with National Geographic tells us how the benefits of protecting 30% of the planet will outweigh the costs. Lily Eskelson-Garcia with the National Education Association, the NEA, is dropping by. How is America going to protect our children as Trump and DeVos force them back into school? And Charlie Jang with Greenpeace USA is here about how a Green New Deal and the DNC will get along. Tune in wherever you find fine podcasts. Welcome back. Let's hear from the men on this. Richard in Pasadena, California. Hey, Richard. Thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Oh, sure. Thank you for taking my call. On this females in charge, I've been a... For years, I was a facilitated dysfunctional families, and it's clear to me that males are essentially crybabies, and females are the source of power anywhere and everywhere. Here's my question. If females had been in charge of our police forces since World War I, would we be where we are today? With, they I doubt would it. not kill people's kids. They would not. Yeah. 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 Or if uh, police forces themselves are majority female, 
you know, again, yeah. we're suffering. We're a country that is suffering from testosterone poisoning. And as a man who has, you know, and I've spent my whole life <laughs> struggling with testosterone poisoning, as it were, and I think sure. most men have, we need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize that. Richard, thank you. Can Thanks for your contribution you to the conversation. Thing, a little funny thing about sure. Rain Man, the movie Rain Man. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember when Tom Cruise was tired of driving and he looked over and he thought, I wish, you know, I didn't have to drive. And, and Rain Man tells him, uh, he says, I'm an excellent driver. And Tom Cruise, you know, is like, whoa. I'm thinking Donald Trump is, everything is falling That's down right, yeah. around him. And he's going, I'm an excellent president. <laughs> I'm an excellent Well, this is the point that Mary Trump makes is. Yeah, this is this is the point that Mary Trump makes is that he has failed at everything in his life, but he was always rich enough that there were syncopants and toadies around willing to catch him when he fell and all the sadder. Thank you, Richard, for the call. Steve in Venice, California. Hey, Steve, what's up? Yeah. Hey, I'm uh, unfortunately a member of the most terrifying and ridiculous group of people on Earth, that being white men. Let's follow that it with a seems. quote from Lenin. Yeah, it seems. Lenin once was quoted as saying, there's no limit to men's egotism in the world. In order to defect change, we must see the world through the eyes of women. Lenin said that. Which really? Is amazing. He certainly didn't live Yeah, that. Yeah, isn't <laughs> yeah, that something? And the yeah. other thing I would say that in one way, <laughs> the horror of Donald Trump, he's the perfect president for a society of the spectacle, which is what we have. All men should be required. They should be sat down and be required to read The Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord. That book still rings true. It's amazing. And the last point I wanted to make was John Mark Hale, the uh, mythographer and historian writer, he points the finger at the original takeover of mythology by men. Remember mm-hmm. when they... Yeah, when when they, uh, it was a matriarchal society and all this was uh, going along yeah. okay, suddenly men found out their actual part in reproduction. They figured it out and absolutely took advantage of it. You start to see the rise, if you'll pardon the pun, of Priapol-based societies. Obelisks start being real popular. You know, let's build an obelisk. Right. So, you know, you know who writes brilliantly about this is Leonard Schlein. I knew Leonard Schlein. He was a remarkable man. He was a brain surgeon. And he wrote a book about Zen and art, but he also wrote this book called The Goddess Versus the Alphabet. And by the way, there's a a TED Talk by him or a speech. No, it's not a TED Talk. It's just a speech. You can find it easily on YouTube just by Googling Leonard Schlein or by going to YouTube and plugging it into their search engine. Leonard Schlein, S-C-H-L-A-I-N, I I think is how he spells it. And uh, uh, Goddess Versus the Alphabet. And it'll pop right up. And it's about an hour-long talk, and it's mind-boggling. It's jaw-dropping. And he documents how right up until the 1500s, the majority of Christianity was devoted not to Jesus. In fact, Jesus was very rarely mentioned. It was devoted to Mary. Mary worship was all over the place. And all the churches were dedicated to Mary, Santa Maria, St. Mary. I mean, everything was about Mary. And then in the 1500s, the men took over. And in two generations, they went from women being venerated, women being in charge, women being, you know, in many places, and women being the center of religious adoration, to women being burned at the stake, literally as witches. The witch hunts began. And, And just, and they have never stopped. It's just amazing. Steve, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Vince in San Jose, we got a half a minute. Vince, what's up? Hi, Tom. I am in absolute agreement that women should just flat out take over. I was uh, raised by a strong single mom. My brother and I were raised in the 1960s and 70s. 
And I just wish I'd paid more attention to her as I grew into adulthood. My father, you know, bless his heart, they divorced in 73, but he was terrible with money. He was terrible with foresight. And, uh, you know, my mom now <laughs> worth quite a bit of money, quite a bit more than my father ever was. So yeah. and she, she just, women just have a, a far better ability to look down the road and see what's coming and react accordingly. Men... I agree with you. That's that's why, by the way, the person who runs all the business decisions that have to do with this show is my wife, Louise. And it's not, I, I don't mean that in some patronizing way. Uh, she has I'm run virtually life, every company that we have started. Yeah, there you go. Vince, thanks a lot. Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. I really enjoy doing these separate from what we're doing on the air because sometimes I can say things that would be impolitic or inappropriate to say on the air. Like the name of the website that I'm talking about in this video, and I lay it out and share it with you on the video. And uh, this website is just outing these judges that Donald Trump and the Federalist Society have been sending through Mitch McConnell's Senate like a friggin' assembly line, and how unqualified they are, how hateful they are, how aggressively they've worked to screw students. Well, one of them actually said that the women who are on birth control pills, that should be reason to fire people. Right? I mean, this is just insane. You can check it out over at TomHartman.com. So in the category of this sounds like good news, like things are moving ahead, this is not, it didn't succeed, but Bernie Sanders and Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden and Elizabeth Warren put together a piece of legislation that would have cut the Pentagon budget by 10%. Now, at any other point in our past, particularly after 9-11, such a proposal would have been laughed at. Our federal Pentagon budget right now is, I believe, a little more than twice what it was in the year 2000, just 20 years ago, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. Our federal defense budget was in the neighborhood of the mid to high $300 billion a year in the late 90s, early 2000, and now it's uh, 700 and change billion dollars per year, 740. And so Bernie Sanders, Jeff Merkley, Ron Wyden, and Elizabeth Warren said, cut it by 10%. Now, in the past, that would have gotten one vote. Bernie's, right? Maybe Elizabeth Warren's. Yesterday, it got the vote of 23 Democratic senators. That's almost half of the entire Democratic caucus. Now, again, it wasn't enough to pass. They had unified opposition among the Republicans, and there were some Democrats who voted against it. And even if all the Democrats had voted for it, it wouldn't have passed. But it's a good step in the right direction frankly, in my opinion. So uh, AJ in Tampa, Florida. Hey, JJ, what's on your mind today? We're talking about, you know, assigning different roles in politics or signs in business or whatever, but we're talking about it in the terms of gender. And, you know, mm-hmm. with all the discussion that gender is just a social construct, and that's what basically created all the patriarchy, why are we then buying into that gender aspect of it and saying, we need this gender in this role and this gender in this role, when that's what the patriarchy did, and now we're buying into that. 
I think that those are two separate conversations. You know, I think that what is gender and in particular, what is gender for people who are gender, who are non, not conforming to binary gender stereotypes or whatever you want to call it. That's a completely separate conversation from looking at the Iroquois Confederacy as Ben Franklin did. Ben Franklin got up at the opening of the Constitutional Convention in June of 1787, and or maybe it was May, and he got up and he introduced 34 members of the Iroquois Confederacy who had come to offer a blessing. And he said it would be a, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, but this is pretty damn close. He said it would be an extraordinary thing if a nation which has survived for a thousand years in peace. I'm forgetting the rest of the quote. But in any case, you know, he pointed out that the Iroquois Confederacy had lasted this very, very long time and lived in peace. Oh, and he said, and and it would be an extraordinary thing if uh, 13 colonies of educated Englishmen can't do the same. And what the Constitutional Convention and basically what the founders chose to do was ignore the lesson of the Iroquois Confederacy, which is men were not allowed to run for political office, basically. The leaders of four of the five uh, Iroquois nations by law, by a law that was a thousand years old, had to be women, versus in the newly formed United States, it was we're not even going to let women vote, much less run for political office. I mean, there, there were, you know, first women in Congress were in the 20th century. So I, I really think that those are, are different arguments, AJ, respectfully. Robin in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Robin, what's up? Hi, good morning, Tom. I just want to qualify women as leaders. I do agree. I mean, just look around. I mean, look at the great job that all these women-led countries have done on COVID-19. But can we qualify it just a little bit? Elizabeth Warren or Stacey Abrams? Yes. Nikki Haley? No. Haley represents all that is wrong with right-wing politicians. She's no better than Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, who initially were openly critical of Trump for the clown that he is until he became candidate Trump. And then when Russia successfully got him elected, they were all in with this guy. Yeah, I think that what you're looking at, Robin, and I agree with you, but I think that what you're looking at is a a classic, it's not quite Stockholm syndrome, it's more Mm -hmm. like climber syndrome, but in the history of every oppressed people, whether it was African Americans in the United States held in slavery, whether it was oppressed people during the Roman Republic, whether it was, uh, you know, the Greek, uh, uh, pick your place, right? Jews in, in Germany in the 1930s. In the history of every oppressed people, you will find a few members of the oppressed group who choose to identify with their oppressors in exchange mm-hmm. for power or wealth or a sense of security and safety. And I think that exactly. that's what you're seeing with Joni Ernst and some of these other, you know, women Republicans and Susan Collins, you know, trying to be, well, I'm sort of pro-life, you know, but she's trying to find her way in this male-dominated world of the Republican Party. And, you know, frankly, if she wants to be a decent politician, she should become a Democrat. And if she wants to stay a Republican, she should just resign or, you know, get ready to get voted out of office because that's that's the way the wind is blowing. But I think what you're identifying, Robin, is the exception that proves the rule, not the exception that demonstrates that the rule is wrong. Well, that's really unfortunate because Susan Collins is going to lose her position. For what? Because she thought Trump would have learned his lesson after the impeachment. Oh, my God, that is so laughable. Well, that's that's my uh, point, is that she sold her soul basically for 
you know, for the power and the prestige and ultimately the money that comes with being a United States senator. Robin, I got to move along, but thank you for your call. Good points, and they need to be discussed. Al in Zanesville, Ohio. Hey, Al, what's up? Hi, this uh, may be a little different tack, but I was listening to NPR one day, and it, it was uh, presented a study that they compared the patient's recovery times with male physicians versus female physicians. And a couple, a married couple of physicians was presenting that uh, topic. And the conclusion was that the, the women's patients recovered much better, much faster with less, you know, problems than the male physicians. And the bottom line was, if it had been treated by all female, we would have saved 30,000 lives. That's kind of yeah, I remember when that came out. I don't remember the details of it, and I don't recall if I read it or if I heard it on NPR. It was about a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and I, I think it has to yeah. do with the communication and the listening involved. Yeah. And in fact, they identified that. They said that it had to do with that women were more empathetic. They were listening to the patients, and therefore they were making more informed decisions. Al, thank you. That's a good one. Ken in New York City. Hey, Ken, got a little less than a minute. You got a quick one? Sure. Actually, up in the Adirondacks. But anyway, you know, the caller before that gentleman, I think you kind of addressed my point anyway. And I think you may have a valid point as far as what you're saying. I'd also like to point out that culture may be a lot more powerful in this than we think. If you think of Mm -hmm. TV movies... The women now are just as violent, and they're kicking and they're killing and murdering and everything else just as much. And of course, as uh, mentioning some of the pundits, the cultures and such. Well, wait a minute. I, I, let me push back on that, Ken. Generally sure. speaking, I'm not seeing women being portrayed in violent movies as the bad guy, as the bad person. And no. so, generally, the women superheroes that I've seen, they're defending people. Go ahead. I was addressing more the I was yeah, addressing more the violence, but you know. Okay. Ah, I see. Yeah, I got it. Oh, you know, women are perfectly capable of violence. I mean, there's a long history there. That's where the word Amazon came from. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Wynn in Solon, Maine. Hey, Wynn, what's up? Speaking of Susan Collins. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Listen, with all these many, many problems we have there, put in place by the white male power structure, you know, the inequality, pollution, climate crisis, pandemic, economic crisis, police problems, pollution problems, racism, sexism, misogyny. It's all put in place by the white male power structure. And like we're all at war, but we got all these problems and we all start picking away at all of them, but they all come from the same place. And I want to know why we as Democrats can't group them all under one umbrella and call it what it is. In a day and age where money equals power, we're under siege. This is, and why can't it be called, a class war? Because that is what it is, and it encompasses all of those problems. But I never hear it talked to or framed in that way, because it is a class war, period. Yeah, I think that the various experiments with Marxism and what was called communism around the world kind of took the shine off or, or the, the bloom off or whatever the phrase is, the phrase class war. Class war has come to be associated with those kinds of regimes. And so it's just not that useful any longer. But point made, Win. you know, point made. Chris in Portland. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, a couple of callers ago, the woman 
called about qualifying women holding power. And I wanted to point out that the ones that were mentioned were women who were sort of subjugated to lesser roles in a male-dominated environment. But we have to also be aware of people like Margaret Thatcher and Ayn Rand, who have had a great deal of uh, influence over powerful men and that their influence has been very... Yeah, well, and not only that, who themselves were contaminated with an an internalization of misogyny. You know, Margaret Thatcher, you can just Google that, with Ayn Rand in her first big book, Fountainhead, I think Howard Rourke was the name of the hero. He rapes a woman and she decides later that she likes it or liked it. Yeah. I mean, that's, honest to God, that's the, you know, that was the book that first made her famous. And that was acceptable, I suppose, in the 50s. You know, another reflection of uh, the misogyny built into our culture. But as I said earlier, I think that the history, and thank you, Chris, for the call, I think that the history of oppressed people will show you. And you can find it in, you know, example after example. And many of them are quite famous. And some of them have phrases that, you know, are now offensive. But that among any oppressed group, you're going to find people among the oppressed who are willing to identify with and bind themselves to the oppressors in exchange for safety, security, wealth or power or all of the above. David in Occidental, California. Hey, David, what's up? I find this inane. I find this argument inane. I work with I'm in human service. Why are you engaging Uh, in it? Well, the inanity of saying that uh, only women should be in politics and men shouldn't. I work with plenty of men who are entirely capable of empathy, and I would love to see in positions of uh, power and decision-making within our government. And I have heard a couple of people call, Me too, but example, look at the norm. The gentleman who look mentioned about uh, gender, and then a woman called and started giving examples of women in history, and you just gave one of the most egregious ones in Ayn Rand. But you keep mentioning that there's people who side with their oppressors, and I find that too convenient a refuting of the during this debate. I I think there are plenty of men who are capable of empathy and should be in positions of power. And considering what I do with my living and the people I interact with, I find this argument to not be true. And the David, David, we're going to run out of time in just a second. So rather than trying to talk over each other, let me just present you with a question. If it is true, as I'm perceiving, that a small but significant majority of men are more likely to march a a country off to war or behave violently, and a minority of women would take that position, let's say it's only 51 versus 49 percent, but when you repeat that hundreds of thousands of times over 100 years with hundreds of thousands of political positions, you end up with war and violence in society. Isn't it time to make a change, even if it's only a so small So you're change? playing essentially a numbers game, but by doing that, you're taking a yes. whole segment of society in this, in this point of view, this argumentative point of view, that That's absolutely are incredibly right. capable and should be in positions of empathy and control or positions of power and saying, no, you just can't because you happen to be so a So what's your alternative? And I'd like to go back to that 45 mentioned about what's gender and how, and how that... My alternative is it, it goes down to the person. It has to be the person. It shouldn't be male or female. And especially going back to that idea of what does gender mean? what is male or female in the first place. I do appreciate the debate, but I find it, it it's a name in the point of view that I mentioned. Uh, thanks again for all your time, Tom. I appreciate it's, it very much. You're, you're welcome, David. It is, it is an oversimplification. But the simple fact of the matter is, if women had been running this country for the last 200 years, 
how different would we be? I mean, it's a, I, it's a legitimate question. But if men are tending toward violence and women are tending away from violence, even if that tendency is only a couple of percent on both sides off the center line, you know, 53% versus 47%, something like that, then, you know, what's going to happen over time is that if women are in charge, society is going to get progressively less violent over time. And if men are in charge, society is going to get progressively more violent over time. One could argue. I think I just did. Anyhow, we're gonna, we'll continue this conversation and a whole bunch of others in just a minute. Stick around. We'll be back with more of our program right after this. Doris in Westland, Michigan. Hey, Doris. Well, I wanted to comment about the man who called in and said that mm-hmm. uh, he disagreed because the argument was inane. But to me, that's a typical male response. Instead of just saying, I disagree with you and presenting his argument, he had to insult you. And that's yeah, just yeah, the I way got men it. act. I, I, I w- yeah, I chose not to take the bait on that and rather treat him as if he was being respectful because he was making a point that very few people called in to make. I said to Joyce, who you know answers our phone, you know, if you get anybody who wants to take a position contrary to mine, I would love to have that debate, that conversation, and maybe I'll learn something. But so far, we've only had one caller say that. Doris, thank well, you. Thank you. Spot on. Uh, yes. Go ahead. I had a hard time not calling him a name myself, so I just said man. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Thank okay. you, Doris. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. David in Ketchum, Idaho. Hey, David, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm talking to you through my face mask on the town square of Ketchum. I'd say that you didn't go far enough in that you didn't say why Ben Franklin, when he brought in the Iroquois Confederacy, brought up the gender role in their confederacy and and why he was so enduring. And I'd like to mention our Democratic candidate for senator, United States senator in Idaho, and her name is Paulette Jordan, and she's the first 1,000th generation American to mm. run for the U.S. Senate. And so she's Native I, American. I, she's running for the Senate. That's wonderful. Yes, yeah, she's, she's from Has from she won the primary? Is she the candidate? Absolutely. That's fantastic. Tell the campaign to reach out to Sean, and we would love to have that candidate. Uh, we would love to have her on the program. David, thank you for the call. Tony in Fort Worth, Texas. Tony, you have the last minute of the show. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks. And I'll be brief. The standard that they were talking about with what Lenin said about women and all, you're basing mm-hmm. that on the standard of the Judeo-Christian, white, Anglo-Saxon, European, white man. When I say that, you look at effective African-American politicians, such as the late Elijah Cummings, the late John Lewis, and based mainly former President Barack Obama. You put a paternal part into those men and possibly the race, and you put that familial aspect into their background, you have a different candidate. You have a different type. You have a different leader. I'm missing something here. I mean, I get that people who grew up, even men who grew up as minorities, have a different understanding of society than men who grew up as part of the majority. And Tony, I'm sorry, we're, we're hitting the end of the show here. Just as we're getting into a deep conversation. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today and for caring about this country and the future and fate of the world and the people in it, the human beings in it, and all other life. Thank you. 
please tell your friends how to find good progressive media. There's a lot of great progressive media out there. However you're listening to this program or watching it, share that with somebody. Tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 